how is everybody doing today? Are you as spaced out as me? There are days, I don't know, if you are me at least, if you are anything like me at least, there are days that you live through daydreaming. Like it's not even a joke. <laughs> I'm all about meditation, being present in the moment, all of that shit. But there are days that I'm like, no, this day was just made for me to walk through it and be like, what is life? What a trip. I'm not even high. It came to the point where I was at the traffic light. You know how they have those traffic islands and they're separated by a fence from like the cars and shit and the road. <laughs> so, you know, you go onto the island, you, you know, go zigzag, go to the traffic light to cross onto the other side of the road. Thanks for listening to How to Cross a Road by Maya. <laughs> so, you should go one way, right? Because that's where the exit of that fence is and that's where the traffic light is and where you should cross the road. No, Maya went the other way. Luckily, that fence exists for people who, like me, walk through daydreamers. That's why that fence exists. And for good 60 seconds, I was standing there being like, what am I doing? I'm staring at a park. It's like the side of the road. How does this make sense? Wow, what an intro. Such an interesting story for a 27-year-old. Hi, everybody. My name is Maya. If you're, if you're new here, these are the kind of stories you can expect. They ruin my research of true crime that I do very thoroughly, if I may say so myself. And this is what all means necessary. It's a podcast comes out every Monday to boost your mood and tell you how to cross the roads among a crime case. <laughs> Apart from actually telling you a crime case, because it's, you know, true crime comedy mix. Hey, welcome. Boy, what a day. <laughs> so, should we dive straight into this? Because I'm spaced out without <laughs> taking drugs. So, I mean, we might as well. And boy, today's story, we are going big. We are going Mona Lisa big. Like, I actually don't have the plan, the third case for the month plan, so uh, if anybody wants to hit me up in the meantime, be like, yeah, you can top that. Good luck. Because <laughs> this story was just like, wh why? Because, I mean, how can you top Mona Lisa? It's like the main bitch. <laughs> and if I ever cover the story that would portray Rihanna's good girl gone bad, it would be this story. Because before this theft, Mona Lisa wasn't famous, like, at all. People weren't going to Louvre all like, oh my god, Mona Lisa, let me see this painting. Nope. Just like in life, it took one man's choice to go to the bedside for a woman who he stole to become famous. Wow, cut to the intro, please. <laughs> On August 21st, 1911, Mona Lisa was stolen by Vincenzo Perugia, who kept the infamous painting to himself for two years. During this time, the police blamed the theft on some famous suspects in an attempt to resolve the mystery by all means necessary. What was the motive behind the theft of Mona Lisa? Just a reminder, among other things I'm not talented at, I don't speak French. I'm gonna butcher a couple of words during this episode, so sorry if you're like French and listening. Stos. So as always, let's place ourselves in the shoes of the people that discovered the painting that was missing. And it's truly a different time, because again, it's, you know, early 1900s, that this was the reaction. 
So at 8.35 a.m. on another Manic Monday. Just another Manic Monday. Boy, I wish I had a voice. This podcast would be banging. Cool. So, Monday, yeah? August 21st, 1911. I'll stop anything and sing that it's just another Manic Monday. If, like, I once I walked into a donut shop and I could not calm my shit down until that song was still playing. And, like, I was just making them all sing it with me. So, yeah. <laughs> if I ever get to have a chill podcast where I just chat shit, not just here, you know, where I chat shit and true crime, it will be called Manic Monday. That's it. Fuck it. Fuck copyright. I don't care. Manic Monday. Cool. On to the topic. So Louvre's maintenance director was just like doing his casual, usual walk around the museum to see if everything is okay. And he notices the painting was gone, but he thought nothing of it, because the museum photographers at the time would freely remove objects just without notice and would take them like to the studio elsewhere, and then would take like pictures of it, you know, for the papers, for the press. Another important thing to notice is that Louvre was closed that day. So there were just maintenance workers, just cleaning staff, curators, this manager. And this maintenance director even made a comment saying um, to the other workers, I guess the authorities have removed it because they thought we would steal it. Nobody thinks nothing of it. Here comes Tuesday. They actually open the doors, you know, they have finished their maintenance. And again, nobody's alarmed in the morning that the whole S painting is missing. So here comes this artist, you know, like paint all of this, like, hey, gallery, this is how it looks like. And he puts his easel in Salon car where Mona Lisa was placed. And he says, yeah, the centerpiece is missing. So he complains to the guard and the guard just shrugs. Because he also just thought that it was removed and it was in the photographer's studio. But the artist persisted. It was like, why wouldn't it be returned? Like, the public is here to see it. Again, as I mentioned, this wasn't discovered or no alarms were flaring up because Mona Lisa wasn't a big deal in 1911. So it was more the fact that, hey, there's a gap here where a painting should be rather than like, oh my god, it's fucking Mona Lisa, like, alarm bells should be ringing around Paris. So this guy is like, oh, I hate this shift already. <laughs> like, I work at the museum. I feel so sorry for the museum guards because it just seems like the dullest work. And I hope at least you get paid well. I at least hope. Because you just, you just look and stare at people watching, like, not behaving or just taking pictures for their fucking Instagram. It's a sad life, man. Sorry. Kudos to you. You're doing God's missions. So, this guard shrugs and he informs the superior. And the superior is like, oh, fuck yeah, it should be there. So, search becomes and everybody soon starts to become frantic. However, the director of the museum was on vacation. So there was nobody to actually take control of this. These news get filtered to the press. And the infamous title was printed everywhere. Front page news that said she's gone. Or Ella Esparti. I don't know. I would have a year, man. I can't fucking speak French. It's like, who invented this language? You know, Spanish, Italian. You see it as you fucking read it. Serbian as well. English, French. What was wrong with you? <laughs> so among other things... Yeah, Mona Lisa wasn't that famous, but security was also weak. Reports from that time say that there were only about 150 guards. And the incidents of stolen art just didn't happen that frequently. Like, the stolen or damaged art in the museum would happen every few decades kind of thing. 
As I mentioned, the director of the museum was on vacation, so the curator of Egyptian antiquities was contacted, and he called the police. And they immediately, like, yeah, there's no crime in town, so they immediately put 60 investigators on the case. They, you know, hush people out, all of the visitors are outside, and they continue the search. And here I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. And before telling you how it was recovered, let me tell you about the actual theft. We are back on that manic Monday. Stop it, stop it, don't go for it. <laughs> and remember our maintenance director? His name was, his last name was Piquet, okay? Like Shakira's Piquet, yeah, but it was just spelled differently because it's fucking French. <laughs> Forever angry at French people, let's do it. So again, maintenance work is going on, he's passing through this Salon Corre. He points to Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa and tells this co-worker that this is the most valuable object in the museum. He's just like, yo, look at this shit. <laughs> he makes a comment saying um, that people say it's worth a million and a half. And he like glances at his watch and he just like goes out to the room and just like, hey, passing comment, like, can you believe this? Like, look at her face, can you believe this shit? He didn't, okay. If you're new to my channel, I add a lot of things. Usually if there's a swear word, it's my own addition to the story. Thank you. This was around 7.20 a.m. So soon after that, a door of this closet opens. And at least one man, because it was never kind of proved in the future, like, did he operate by himself? I'll speak about that later. But like, was it just one man or did he have like any accomplices? So this man emerges and obviously goes into the room to take the painting off the wall. That's why he's there. He had been in this closet for a whole last day. So he has been there since Sunday, which was the museum's busiest day. So obviously before closing time, he slipped inside this little closet so that he can emerge in the morning without any need to like identify himself to the guards at the entrance. Okay, this is a quick sideline story, but... Again, I'm not a parent, but this shit needs to be prevented when they're kids. Because it's really easy to spot when they're kids. I'm talking from the personal experience because my brother could have become a thief. Like, not even a joke. The guy would steal my pocket money, put a piece of paper and put like 500 or whatever, like however much he would steal. This is 500 like dinars, okay? RSD is like 5 quid or nothing. <laughs> I don't know the conversion rates. But basically, my brother used to steal, like, from the family. So it was, like, kind of like the change that we would leave at the chest of drawers. But then, obviously, it would kind of, like, accumulate. <laughs> because he would steal my pocket money and just <laughs> everything from the family. So at first, he used to put it underneath a carpet. But then, you know, when people hoover, they discover it. So he was like, no, this is not the smartest idea. So he had, like, this metal box. And he used to put it in this part with hooks and nooks. Basically, you know how you have the extendable tables? I don't actually see them much in the UK. Tell me if this is like a new concept to you or I'm just describing a table. So, you know how usually you have like four members of the family, whatever, however many, you have like a normal table. But then there are those extendable ones. And the middle part that you would put, like once you actually extend it for more people to sit at the table. Thanks, Maya, for describing how tables work. That was very useful. So that middle part would go underneath a table after that and it would kind of, well, need to be supported by something. So it would usually be on like these hooks and nooks and weird shit underneath the table. So we just noticed my bro just randomly started playing underneath this table like every fucking day. Coming to his scene of the crime, protecting his money. I mean, he was like literally five. He was five or six, okay? This is why this was kind of acceptable. We cut this to the core early. <laughs> not you know i can just imagine you picturing like a teenage boy just under the table and like woo toys so yeah he was about five and six 
And well, soon enough, we discover that he has proper money accumulated as a savings account underneath this table. And yeah, I think my dad beat the shit out of him, it's fine. He went out at some point, he was obsessed with money, Jesus, it's a running joke in the family, because you're like, huh, like, you would have stolen from your family, like, if this wasn't cut to the core, straight up. At some point, he was five or six years old, he took, because I think somebody gave me, like, five euros or whatever, so, we, the euros are not the currency back home, it's dinner, it's worthless, anyways. He went to the exchange office that was a couple of doors from our house. It's literally like a five-year-old kid. Can't even reach the stand. He was just like, yeah, exchange this for me, please. I don't know. I'm surprised how that woman didn't like call the police. Different times. So yeah. In this story, I always picture, even with actual like true crime cases where like people perv in the house and they stay there overnight and kind of like spend time in the closet. I'm like, this is some premeditational levels that I will never understand. For you to chill in a closet for a whole last day and at no point you think like, this is a bad idea. And yeah, as I said, like I can, I believe it's easily cuttable, preventable as soon as you see a child who is just like lurking and perving somewhere. Like, let's investigate this. But now let's actually go back to this story once he's out of the closet. Again, like in the previous story, he kind of knew that the museum is going to be closed, so he's just going to get mistaken for one of the other maintenance workers. And because it was early 1900s, this was again a very quick steal. So he went, well, according to him and according to like later accounts, apparently wank, um, <laughs> wanked, he did not wank, he went, picked up the painting, Boy, if you wank to Mona Lisa, you have bigger issues. Please, if you do, okay, just create one of those automated emails that doesn't reveal your name or last name. Just please wank, email me if you wank to Mona Lisa. I just need to know the statistics of this. He went. He took the Mona Lisa off the wall and then carried it into the stairwell where he knew people won't see it. Here comes an important point to know. Mona Lisa weighed about 18 pounds, so that's what, 9 kg, I would say? Because Leonardo painted it, not on canvas, but on three slabs of wood, so that was heavy. And was also a common practice during the Renaissance. However, during the past couple of months, the museum directors have taken steps to physically protect it from being stolen by adding massive wooden brace and placing it inside a glass-fronted box, adding about 150 pounds to the weight. And this decorative renaissance frame brought it to about a total of 200 pounds. So now that's about 100 kg. That's like a good gym weight that I can't do, but you know. It's like you are the gym fanatic when you're lifting that shit. However, if we neglect the actual weight, only four sturdy hooks would hold it there. So again, this is like as if it was a painting in your house and you just quickly can remove it as long as you are aware of the weight and can lift that weight to begin with. Not just that, but the museum officials would later explain that the paintings were fastened to the wall to make it easy for the guards to remove them in case of fire. I mean, I mean, nobody wins, nobody wins. Our man Vincenzo is now at the staircase, yeah, this is where we left him. He strips the painting of all of these protective garments. So the brace, the glass case, and the frame. So, now we know he strips off this weight, but because of the wood that I mentioned that Leonardo used, you can't just roll it up. So what he did was he slipped it underneath his smock, underneath the coat. 
Another fun fact here that you need to know is that Mona Lisa is actually pretty small. So it's actually 30 by 21 inches. I don't know how small that is. And also I've been to Paris and haven't gone to Louvre. And I just hated that whole trip. <laughs> I was like, fuck Mona Lisa, fuck everything. There's a queue in front of there. I don't queue. But yeah, from the pictures that I've seen online, it's kind of particularly small compared to the other paintings. Then you kind of, you know, have to squint to see if she's smiling, is she not? Which apparently is a big deal about this bitch. Vincenzo now obviously is like, okay, cool, have what I came for. So he moves on to go to the door. And he somehow, again, nobody knows how, but he somehow actually obtained a key. But this key failed to work, so he probably stole the wrong key. So he used the screwdriver to remove the doorknob. And he has done this because he was panicking. He actually heard somebody coming down the stairs. And that was one of the plumbers. So it was one of those plumbers that came to do the maintenance for the day. I think his name is pronounced Sauvé. It's like souffle, but not. He testified that he has only seen one man dressed as a museum employee. So according to this account of events, it wasn't the actual thief that has uh, removed the doorknob. According to Sawe, he actually met with him, and this guy was complaining that there was a doorknob missing. And apparently he thought nothing strange of the situation, so he produced a pair of pliers to open the door. And this guy even said, oh, I suggested for us to leave the door open, just in case somebody else needs to use the staircase. Mate, security has upped so much. And the thief agreed, so the two of them just parted ways. Cours. Cours. Too French, too hard. So he opens the door and goes into the courtyard, and that's called Cura du Swings. Basically, this, it's still within the museum. There's this whole square which is kind of surrounded by swing sculptures. From there on, he goes through another gallery and then enters Cura Visconti and heads through the main entrance to the museum. Only few guards were on duty that day, so only one was assigned to the entrance. And after questioning them, obviously, they were like, where the hell were you, mate? And he said he left the post to fetch a bucket of water to clean the vestibule. So he didn't witness anything. He hasn't actually seen the thief. But there was one witness on the street who noticed a man on the sidewalk carrying a package wrapped in white cloth. And he saw this man walk by and then ditch something shiny at the edge of the street. And he glanced and this was a doorknob. And that's that on the theft, he just walks down the road and takes Mona Lisa with him. Now a couple of details still to remember obviously was the weight of the painting, everything that he had to remove off of it, the size of it as well. So through the next two years people will end up speculating, has this been a one-man job or has he had accomplices all this time? But now let's move on to how they have actually recovered Mona Lisa. So, so far you were a thief. Now you're placing yourself in the shoes of the investigators. Lego. The most important discovery you as an investigator are gonna find out in the days after the robbery is actually the first day of the investigation. And that is obviously the disposal of this plate of glass that Mona Lisa was protected with that was just lying in a staircase. This frame was actually ancient and was donated by the Countess de Bjorn two years before the theft. So it hasn't been damaged. So they're like, okay, cool, cool, cool. So they're, you know, obviously asking these witnesses, trying to place this together. So they're like, okay, cool. He took the painting, went to the staircase, disposed of this, went to the street. Pretty easy. Fuck. Need to maybe up the security. I just love that we know this. So they're interviewing 
these guards are like, uh, why were you not at your post? What, what was going on? And one of the main guards was home because his child was sick with measles. You gotta always have the justification for your sick days. It better stick in your head. Where were you? 21st of August, 1911. Measles. That's it. That's the one. And his replacement said, Oh, yeah, I just went, you know, to smoke a cigarette. Like, it was a pretty boring day. I'm a guard at a museum. It's dead. It's dead on a good day. This was a day off. It was deader than dead. So after piecing this together, they have a time frame. And time frame is somewhere between 7 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. But because of those only two witness statements, well, one from the guy inside, right, from the plumber, and then the other one from, well, the guy outside who has seen just the doorknob being dropped. Well, basically, their first thought was that this might have been an inside job. Just because, again, guards are just, you know, turning a blind eye, everybody's kind of chill, like this guy didn't report it until it was Tuesday. And they brought the tumber... (laughs) And they brought in the fingerprint expert and kind of took the fingerprints off the Mona Lisa frame, but were unable to match it to anybody on the files. So they're like, okay, cool, it's nobody that works here. And if you know anything, if you read Agatha or Sherlock or just any old-timey true crimes things, they don't, like, you know, wait, and I mean, they didn't have technology back then to do this, to wait to, you know, see everything, have all the evidence, and then be like, point fingers. No, they point fingers first. Well, some of the suspects. Well, first suspicion fell on this modernist artist. Because during that time, apparently, these modernist artists were just, like, taking a swipe at traditional painters. So there was this guy, Julian Apollinaire, who was a playwright and a poet, and once said that the painting of Mona Lisa ought to be burned. He was arrested, and then, obviously, they have that fingerprint thing. I don't know how it worked back then. They probably just compared the images, and they were like, yeah, not close enough. But yeah, he had an alibi, or it was just the fingerprint thing, so he was soon released. Frenchmen soon started blaming the Germans, believing that it was a play to demoralize the country. Germans, for it was a play by the French to distract from international concerns. Again, remember the year, First World War was just around the corner. Then there were just a bit out there theories, which people were blaming the Louvre workers, that they stole the painting because, in order to reveal how bad the security was at Louvre, And then there were obviously some of them that just thought it was done as a joke. And yeah, the painting will be back. Like, yo, nobody cares about this Mona Lisa girl. Now, this next paragraph is really where we push it with our theories. In the days and weeks immediately after the theft, so everybody carrying a package was suspicious and was kind of held accountable. Like, yeah, show us what you got. This included a young Spanish artist named Pablo Picasso. That Picasso, yes. So yes, that Picasso, four years earlier, purchased several small Iberian stones that were actually taken, stolen from Louvre, by the Guillaume Apollinaire person. And Apollinaire spent a few days in jail, but Picasso got scot free, and he even used these stones as models in one of his paintings. The police continued to examine the roads, the capital, the contents of every car, every truck, and custom inspectors opened and examined the baggage of everybody leaving the ships or trains because they believed that this suspect is going to try to flee the country. And as the tensions were high, even when the German liner docked on a pier across the Hudson River from New York City, detectives combed through every piece of luggage again because they were like, yep, it can go in any direction. Then they make their second arrest, and it's the poet and playwright Julian Apollinaire, the guy that I just mentioned. 
So 17 days after the theft, they arrest him. And they only managed to keep him for a few days again, and then he was released. Because the fingerprints wouldn't match. I mean, I don't know how else would they eliminate people during that time. Because they had so little to go on. They didn't drop Picasso so easily, though. Like, the suspicion on him still kind of is in every source that I've read. And it lasted for much longer. Because their theory is that a great painter would surely want another great painting. Like, he can paint himself. Like, the fuck? Soon the trail went cold though, the weeks went by, the months went by, the years went by. The latest theory was that the painting has been accidentally destroyed during a cleaning and the museum was using the idea of a theft as a cover-up, like that's how far this was pushed. But, and this is my opinion, is that after some time people didn't really care, like they wanted it recovered, don't get me wrong, because yes, that would boost, you know, the visitorship, like how many visitors would come to see the museum. However, even this theft in itself boosted that. So there were queues in front of the museum, which never appeared when Mona Lisa was in residence before that. Because people just wanted to see the empty spot. They just wanted to see where it was hung, you know, maybe see like, hey, how would have they done it? Maybe it's easy, let's do it ourselves. Two years went by without any real suspects, any real proof, and any real leads. And then the thief made contact. And I put, this kind of speaks to the person now, doesn't it? Like, you had it for two years, you could have gotten away with this. What are your real intentions here? To be exact, 28 months after he snatched it from Louver, Perugia made contact. He made contact with an art dealer in Florence, Alfredo Gheri, who placed an ad in several Italian newspapers which stated that he was a buyer of good pieces of art objects of every sort. So he owned like an art gallery, so this was kind of common. He was just innocently looking for art to place in his random ass gallery. But little did he know that soon after he was to place this ad, he would receive a letter dated November 29, 1913, that stated that the writer was in possession of the stolen Mona Lisa and he was like, shite, this is good, this is gold, this is my path to fame. This would be me getting something like this. He was probably like, eh, let's call the police. The letter had a post office box in Paris as a return address because he's just genius and had been signed only as Leonardo. Again, fucking with him much, like it's not coming from the painter himself. So Gary thought, hey, I might be dealing with somebody who has a copy, like he doesn't have actual Mona Lisa. But he still contacted the museum director of Florence Uffizi Museum. And together they decided that Gary is gonna write a letter in return, saying that he would need to see the painting before he could offer the price. Smart, smart man Gary. And then another letter came through asking Gary to come to Paris to see the painting. So Gary's there being like, mm, I can't go to Paris, but instead, Leonardo, you can come meet me in Milan on December 22nd. So they arranged for this meetup, and it actually happened on December the 10th. And there's this Italian man with a moustache, and he's appearing in Gary's sales office in Florence. And he approaches Gary and says like, hey, yeah, I'm Leonardo Vincenzo. I hear Mona Lisa in the back of my hotel room. And he says like, I want half a million lira for the painting. And this would be chill, like, yeah, like a normal transaction, right? But he is like, no, listen, why I stole it is because I wanted to restore to Italy what it had been stolen from it by Napoleon. So he's like, I want to sell it to you so that you can hang it here at Uffizi in Italy and never give it back to France. 
And Gary's there like, oh my god, I'm dealing with a fucking psycho. So he's like, sure, sure, of course, I agree with the price. It's all great. Just keep it in your hotel room. But the director of this gallery, right, he needs to see the painting before agreeing to hang in the museum. Like, it's not my decision. Smart man, Gary. And he suggests, listen, Leonardo, I'm gonna meet you next day, right? And Leonardo, which, you know, is Perugia by this point, right? Have you been following the story? He leaves, Gary immediately goes on the phone, he's like, Polizia, listen, I've got the tea. And the following day, they all crash Leonardo's room, and this is pretty underwhelming, because Leonardo, or Vincenzo here, pulls out a wooden truck, which contains a pair of underwear, some old shoes, and a shirt. And under all of that, he removes this false bottom to the trunk, and there was Mona Lisa, drum roll for the weirdest looking bitch of all time. Just like with the previous story, Gary and the museum director immediately look for the seal. It's like the louver seal that was on the back of the painting, meaning that this was the original. Vincenzo Perugia gets arrested. His defense contradicted everything he has said before, of course. He claimed to have entered the louver through the front door early that Monday. Again, we know this is not correct, sir wandered through various rooms, taken the Mona Lisa, who's just like, <laughs> it just appeared to be there, like, I've just taken it off the wall, I didn't plan this, and left the same way. And then the judge pointed out that during the pre-trial interrogation, he has actually said a different story, which was that he was trying to force the door at the bottom of the little stairwell that led to, towards the cure, what was the word, how do you pronounce it? Forgot it already, the Sphinx thing, right? And Perugia just had no answer to this, so judge just didn't press him. It was like, yeah, you're guilty little shit. One piece of advice in that corner where it's like you need to know true crime to do true crime. If you're being interrogated by somebody, I hear this in every fucking piece of work, the true crime story. You need to make your first account of story so good that you need to stick to it. Just remember that. Again, not giving you advice. Hello? Record chicas. Yes, that first story needs to be golden, because otherwise you're gonna look like a liar and well then you're like most definitely considered a criminal, a flight race, or just somebody who is bullshitting his way. If you just keep changing stories at a trial, at like interrogation and shit, no. Just always think about what is that story that you're gonna sell to the police and then you stick to it, remember it by heart and just be like, yeah, this is how I say it, but you know. Again, you you need to put some effort into it and don't repeat it exactly the same every fucking time because that looks suspicious as fuck. Listen, just don't do crime. It's fucking complicated. <laughs> it's too much effort. Just lie on the couch and die. Okay. And again, speculations were like, well, why was he lying if he freely said what his motive was, technically? And he freely confessed to the crime himself. And people thought, like, maybe he's afraid of implicating any other people that were, like, his accomplices. Or maybe he didn't want to give any further details as to like his patriotic motive. Because he wanted to appear like as the sole conspirator to this. He wanted to take all the fame. So again, to reiterate his motive in his own words, he said that all of the Italian paintings in Louvre were stolen works taken from its rightful home, which is Italy. And when he asked how he knew this, like, what the fuck are you saying? He said he worked at Louvre, and he had found documents that proved it. He remembered this particular book of prints that showed a cart pulled by two oxen, the plural of ox, right? Cool. It was loaded with paintings, statues, and other works of art. And it said that things were leaving Italy and going to France. 
And he didn't even consider Mona Lisa first. Like, Mona Lisa is here, man, being that side chick constantly. <laughs> she's the black sheep in this story. It's actually sad, man. Nobody's like, uh, it's like, oh yeah, she's not stolen. Oh yeah, I don't want to steal this first. I couldn't, I had other options. Like, a poor Mona Lisa, man. Nobody wanted her and now everybody does. Yo, glow up, girl. First, he considered the paintings of Raphael, Carreggio, Giorgione, who, who are these people, I don't know, but yeah, they're great masters, hey. But then, he was like, you know why I took Mona Lisa? Think about it for a second, because it was small. Genius. And then there was this whole thing in the court where they asked him, did he want to sell Mona Lisa? Is it true that he was trying to sell it in England? And he lost it. He was like, I'm a patriot, how dare you even say that? Like, I would have only sold it to Italy. And the judge said, nevertheless, your unselfishness wasn't total. You did expect some benefit from the restorations, hence why you, you know, came through like two years after. It's like, ah, oh, benefit, benefit. I can just imagine him like being completely fucking Italian here. Be like, certainly something better than what happened to me here. And then like everybody laughed in the courtroom like, yeah, this is so hilarious. <laughs> Best stand up ever. So the next day, the chief judge announced the sentence of one year and 15 days. They get, like, shittiest sentences for these crimes, man. And he was heard to say as he was escorted from the courtroom, it could have been worse, which, yeah, it could have been, like, a lot worse, man. Obviously, as with all of these fucking heart thefts, this is the least risk of crime. Again, not offering anybody advice, but just from these two things that I have read. And these are, like, famous paintings, man. I don't know if this has changed now, but yeah, attorneys here presented arguments for an appeal and the court was even more lenient, reducing his sentence to seven months. Eventually, once he left prison, he went and moved to France and opened like this paint shop again. It's just like painting is my life. And Mona Lisa was given a triumphal tour of Italy before she was taken back to France. <laughs> oh god. So the aftermath, obviously, is that yes, Mona Lisa suddenly got famous. And why did it get famous is that immediately again, people started reminiscing on this smile. And as we know, it has been the most mocked painting, like most memed out painting of the day. Now I put in the next line. She smiles like she's reminiscing on that dick, trust me. <laughs> it's like, trust the university, Maya, she knows what she's on about. But please, let me know either on the socials or via email. What do you actually think of Mona Lisa? Like, I'm gonna go into the background now and talk a bit about the painting. But I think it might be the painting of Leonardo da Vinci himself. Because when I look at it, like, really closely to its face, it kind of seems male to me. I don't know why. There's nothing deep about that smile. Again, it's kind of like... You know that, that recent picture that Martha Stewart released that everybody mocked online? Like, it was kind of like a first trap. It was like, ooh, look at me all hot at my pool. And and somebody commented like she looks like the water. She's trying to give you the look of like the water is the second wettest thing here. And this Mona Lisa just reminds me of that. I have no respect for art. Yes, I know. I just compared Mona Lisa to Martha Stewart. What is life today? But people will have to have a break from commenting on her smile or anything because 1914 came around and Archduck Franz Ferdinand of Austria was assassinated in Sarajevo. So soon the world is gonna forget about this crime and everything about Mona Lisa will be trivial to comparison of the First World War and then the Second and then now people are like memes and Instagram life. <laughs>
I love how I said that as if I want the war to happen again. I don't, okay? Let's go to the background, move on from the history of life. The criminal, Vincenzo Perugia here, he was born in 1881 in a village near Lake Cuomo in Italy. He moved to France as a young man and he was an aspiring artist who settled for work as a house painter. He actually did briefly work for Louvre, so that wasn't a lie, from October 1910 to January 1911, so it's like three months. Hence why he knew where the closet is, where to hide. It was even discovered that he has helped craft a protective box that encased the Mona Lisa. So, I mean, clearly, <laughs> this guy was like, yep, this is what I'm gonna steal, this is how I protect it, and I know it, and then I come back to it. And once he was released from jail, he served in the Italian army during World War I. Again, patriotic to the core. He later married, had one daughter, Celestina, returned to France and continued to work as a painter-decorator using his birth name Pietro Perugia because, again, he's like, yeah, this name is in the papers. Even though it's not the internet, people can still, you know, find all the archives, all the archives of the papers. I, I, I'm still famous for the wrong reasons. I'm a changed man now. And I thought this was interesting, so I put a bit about Paris at the time. Because what people mostly don't know, like... Eiffel Tower was actually built in 1889, so its city of light image kind of came to light during this time, and it was international center for painting, dance, music, theater, and publishing. And what about the victim we have here? Mona Lisa or La Gioconda, the M-Dog, <laughs> uh, less known as the M-Dog. It has been described as the best known, the most visited, the most written about, the most sung about, the most parodied work of art in the world. And it's considered a masterpiece of the Italian Renaissance. People speculate, obviously, is it of a real person? So yes, there are theories out there that it's of the painter himself, which is the one I believe on. Then people, most common theory is that it's of, it's like a portrait of an Italian noblewoman, Lisa Gerardini the wife of Francesco del Gioconda, hence why La Gioconda. But to this day, nobody knows. There's a mystery of, of it, because this guy was like a silk merchant, right? And she was his wife, had like five children. So again, kind of like with the girl with the pearl earring. Like that story is based on a real story. But there, you know, Scarlett Johansson was the servant. Well, the girl was the servant. <laughs> But here, again, people love to speculate. It's like, oh, you know, why was he painting somebody else's wife? You know, scandalous for the time. Is that why she was maybe smiling? Is that why the facial features are not revealing of who the actual person is? Is that why, you know, there's like those awkward fucking hands? <laughs> are they? What is known, however, for sure, is that Leonardo took the painting with him when he was invited to France by Francis I in 1516, and the king bought it, and during the French Revolution it was placed at Louvre. Napoleon did take it away to hang it in his bedroom, but it was returned to the Louvre afterwards. So Incenso here didn't have his history right. Scholars have done it again. Scholars have done it again, guys. This is again one of those pieces that you put, one of those paragraphs that people would put in essays just to sound deep, just to make up for the words, without saying anything. <laughs> so this is again on Mona Lisa, and it's like, hey, 
the sense of overall harmony achieved in the painting is especially apparent in the sitter's faint smile, which reflects Leonardo's idea of the cosmically connecting humanity and nature, making this painting an enduring record of Leonardo's vision. In its exquisite synthesis of sitter and landscape, the Mona Lisa set the standard to all future portraits, end quote. Please allow it. Of course, there is one theory that kind of doesn't really belong to the main piece here, to the main body, but um, it's a theory by Freud, that's why I say it. And that is that Leonardo actually painted his own mother, Caterina. And Freud, Sigmund Freud of the Freuds, seemed to think that Mona Lisa's mysterious smile emerged from the unconscious memory of Caterina's smile. And this is because his mother died, and when he was 16, his dad married again, and he married a 20-year-old. So Freud here was against, like, no, it's just, you know, his mom's death affected him so deeply that he drew her from memory, and that's, again, why the features are so ambiguous. But yeah, most scholars kind of think that he was just disguising himself as a woman as the biggest riddle of all times, because why would you think that he is portraying himself as a female? Unless you see that face, and that face is just weird. It's just that the forehead doesn't match for me, the rest of the face. I mean, I know that people have five heads, but, you know. <laughs> Taking digs at Mona Lisa this whole fucking session. No respect for the art. You really need to respect art, man. I respect Moon, come on. But this, I'm like, I don't, it's overrated. I cannot respect something that's overrated. Fuck it, sorry. Let's go to the motives. This is uncomfortable. If you believe Perugia, then he has stolen it because he was in <coughs> an Italian an Italian nationalist and he believed that Mona Lisa belonged to Italy, whether it was false, whether he has read it wrong, whether he just didn't know history, he believed that and that's why he stole it. So here one motive can be that he stole it as like defense of national honor. Because again, he might not have known that Leonardo da Vinci took the painting as a gift for the king, Francis I, when he moved to France to become a painter. And this was in 16th century, so about 250 years before Napoleon was even born. But obviously, because he wanted to actually profit out of it, people have argued that had he wanted that was this fully nationalist, he would have just donated it to like an Italian museum or a gallery, rather than attempting to profit from it. Perucci himself actually said that as the days went on, he fell in love with the painting. He said it was so beautiful, it brought him peace and hope to the otherwise shitty mundane life. But he still had to, you know, keep low, make a plan to return the painting back to Italy where he thought it belonged. Here I give it to you, I genuinely think like he wanted some monetary thing and then kind of found the excuse which would justify him stealing it for like a bigger purpose because he knew like he's gonna get people to actually vouch for him to believe in that better as a motive rather than just coming out and be like, yeah, I stole it for money, like I stole it to profit out of it. And then, well, he just got carried away because he had to be careful. They were monitoring the customs, they were monitoring everything for the longest time. So he had to keep low and actually not try to profit from it straight away because that would have raised suspicions. But I mean, there are still a lot of people believing in something that I haven't heard about until this episode, because it kind of doesn't really happen. And that's reverse Stockholm Syndrome. So, you know, we've had like a whole fucking ass month of the Stockholm Syndrome, where the captive or the victim actually falls for the person holding them hostage. Well, in this case, it can be that Perugia has actually fallen for Mona Lisa, and that's why he kept it for so long. And that might be the initial reason why he steal it in the first place. 
Now, of course, this case has a lot of like other random bits and pieces. So rapid fire facts. Remember that corner? Remember when we had that? There's actually been a whole conspiracy theory, which is that in 1910, there was this mastermind Eduardo da Vilfierno, who was apparently commissioned by the French art forger Yves Chaudron to make copies of the painting. So these copies were produced on Mona Lisa. And when it disappeared from the Louvre, Valfierno started selling them to rich Americans as the original. Apparently there were 30 original, under inverted commas, Mona Lisa's in existence. And he was just adding like half a dozen. And apparently all of these people that were acquiring these stolen goods were believing that museums were just losing the originals at the time and just replacing them with fakes. Make of that as you wish. Now, even more rapid-fire facts. 1911 wasn't the only attempt to damage the painting. In 1956, a Bolivian tourist chucked a rock at the Mona Lisa, causing a small amount of damage to the subject's left elbow. A few months before that, somebody else threw acid at the painting. I swear to God. Now, on to the theories of why Mona Lisa actually doesn't have eyebrows or eyelashes. Well, one suggestion would be that Da Vinci never finished the painting. But another one is that the removal of eyebrows was fashionable at the time. You thought I was doing bad 10, 20 years ago. <laughs> in my teenage years, man. But when it was examined by this ultra-detailed person who was like a Parisian engineer and he was examining the portraits, he actually said that Da Vinci did paint eyebrows, but they gradually eroded by the people restoring the painting. Mona Lisa had its own mailbox at the Louvre to receive the many love letters she received from smitten males. Again. <laughs> I mean, reverse Stockholm Syndrome doesn't even seem that far-fetched now, does it? As I mentioned, this is a celebrity, like, this is the month of celebrities, okay? And celebrities are art, and people fall for it, and people should know better. <laughs> Find realistic crushes, okay? And the last one is that King Francis I of France had the Mona Lisa hung in the bathroom. Again, going back to the point of wanking, stop it, what are you doing? And honestly, if you're wanking to Mona Lisa, like, you need help, man. Just a word of advice, just go for it, just ask for help, go get some help, please. But that's it, that's the case of the theft of Mona Lisa, the aim dog. And now for the section that has been unnamed until this very moment and that I would like to call On the Spot with Maya. What the hell is the section that's called On the Spot all about? It's about checking something, googling something on the spot and finding out about it. Or listening and commenting on something on the spot. This week it's the Google bit. So you know how I've done Cecil Hotel and mentioned Elisa Lamb's case? Yeah. A lot of people speculated in Elisa Lamb's case that when she was in the elevator, that whole weird elevator video, is her playing the elevator game. So I never actually googled it and I was really intrigued to see what the hell it is. So let's find out together. I opened this article, I have not read it before. So let's see what the elevator game is all about. From the looks of it, it's this Korean game and it's elevator to another world. Oh god, this is gonna be some trippy shit. So you need yourself, so you need only one player, one building with at least 10 stories, so 10 floors for the UK people, obviously with an elevator. There are 11 steps just for the trip above- oh god, no, this is already a shite game. So you yourself go to the first floor, you get into the elevator alone, and you should not go into the elevator if there's anybody else in there. Then you press the button to the fourth floor, 
When you reach the fourth floor, you don't get out. Instead, you remain, you press the second floor. When you reach the second, you stay in there, you press the sixth. When you're at the sixth, you go to second. When you're at the second, you go to tenth. When you're at the tenth, you go to the fifth. Am I supposed to like remember all of this when I'm in there? Or can I like read off my phone? You don't say that, do you, shit? So where were you? At the tenth, yeah? You stay in there. You go to the fifth. When you reach the fifth, a young woman may enter the elevator. Are you a psychic? Do not look at her. Do not speak to her. She's not what she seems. Is anybody? Is anybody what they seem, though? So, where did I leave you? Fifth floor. Uh-huh. Then you press the button to the first floor. You're just fucking up this elevator. Do you want to die? Like, what is going on? Oh my god, the next sentence. If the elevator begins ascending to the 10th floor, so instead of going to the first, to the first, because, I don't know, you fucked it up already, you pressed too many buttons, you may proceed. But if it does go to the first floor, you need to exit the door as soon as it opens. Do not look back. Do not speak. Jesus, this is like a horror story. So, okay, so if you're in the first, you exited the hell out of there, you didn't speak with anybody, right? But if you went to the tenth instead of the first, you can choose to get off the elevator to stay on it. Mm-hmm. If you choose to get off, and if the woman entered the elevator on the fifth floor, she's gonna ask you, where are you going? Do not answer her, do not look at her. <laughs> she's gonna ask you where you're going because you are on the wrong floor, because you wanted to go downstairs. Oh my god. 11th step. You will know whether you have arrived at the other world by, by one indication and one indication only. The only person present in it is you. This is a great game to play when you get high. Just say. Okay, there's a return trip. Oh my god. So obviously this is if you're on the 10th floor, right? If you were on the first, you got out of there. As you should have done by the beginning of this stupid game. So, you go back into the elevator, yeah, on the 10th floor. You press the button to the first floor. If it doesn't work, keep pressing until it finally does. You fucked up the elevator. Nothing is working. And then when the elevator reaches the first floor, you exit as soon as the door opens. You don't look. You don't speak. I feel that first floor is cursed, man. But, now, if you choose to exit the elevator at the 10th floor, you must use the same elevator to return as the one in which you arrived. Like, how many elevators does this building have? There was never, like, a the mention of using other elevators. When you enter the elevator, press the buttons in the same order you did in steps 2 through 8 to on of venturing out, so like once you were going upstairs. Without repeating that boring ass procedure, you should finish at the fifth floor. Now when you reach the fifth floor, you press the button for the first floor. And the elevator will again be going up, so we'll be ascending to the tenth floor because you fucked it up. You need to then press any other floor button to cancel this ascension. And you must press the button you use to cancel this before you reach the 10th floor. Does anybody else feel super dumb yet? But yeah. I mean, this would explain Lisa's lamp thing. But okay, okay. Last thing, last thing. Because now you have reached the first floor again. Because every pathway leads to hell, apparently. If anything seems off, even the smallest detail, don't exit the elevator. If you detect something wrong, repeat step 2 until the surroundings look as they should. Step 2 was the do not look, do not speak thing. And only once you're confident you have returned to your own world, you may safely exit the elevator. God, this is dumb as game, but there are additional notes. Let's see this. If you have reached the other world, the floor onto which you emerge will look almost identical to the one from your own. But for two things, all the lights are gonna be off, and the only thing you will be able to see from the windows is a red cross in the distance. <laughs> uh, save me from this game, what is this?
Also, some people say the electronic devices such as phones, cameras, MP3 players don't work in the other world as well. But the others say that they do, so that doesn't matter. Fuck that line. Getting back to your own world though may be more difficult than it seems. Because you are now disoriented because you have used this elevator as a yo-yo to like your human body. So you can become disoriented and forget which elevator you arrived with. And then because you are dizzy as hell, like it may go further and further away from you as you walk towards it. So you need to be vigilant and keep your wits about you. Because you, as you remember, you can't enter the wrong elevator. The next line is like the epitome of highness. If at any point during the ritual you faint, pass out, or otherwise lose consciousness, you will likely wake up in your own home. How? How? But if you do wake up at your own home, be sure that, e that you examine your surroundings upon waking, because the home to which you might have returned may not be the one you left from when you first set out to attempt this ritual. Everything has changed. You're in the other world, your home is not your home no more. So ain't that something? Ain't that game just something else? Thinking of the Elisa Lam video though, I mean it does make sense, I can see why some people would say that, because she's just pressing randomly buttons, not speaking to anybody that enters, kind of like paranoidly looking outside at each floor. But still, I have not heard of people actually playing this game, except if it's like for YouTube for parody reason, like when Shane Dawson did it in 2017 and some weird ass shit like that, but yeah, apart from that, I don't really hear people do this for, for fun, because it just doesn't seem to make sense. But now, oh my god, I kept you for so long. Look what time it is, it's time for the next Zoom call, it's time for the next meeting. And this week, go in there and ask them when are they their most creative. When do they have that like flush of creativity and then they just are edited and they work their best. And you will realize that even though people judge others on this, it's usually either because of the deadline. So it's usually either like last minute, just before the deadline, when they just suddenly have this flush of creativity, which means that that whole information has been there for a while, but it's just as the pressure of the deadline comes along that they have suddenly been pushed to actually put it into production. And also, if, if they're like not admitting or they're just selling you some bullshit story, then what you ask them is what about if you're just mindlessly watching something? Or just like doing something mindlessly, like watching a procedure, watching like some formulaic TV show. Or just walking and not actually thinking about like the present problems and issues that you have and then suddenly it just pops into your head you're like whoa this is the key and then let me know how many people actually won't admit to the second thing and what does that tell about them because i have worked with so many people that are like oh yeah i get so motivated but i need a deadline i cannot do things in advance the only way I do things is just the night before the deadline. And I, I always hate it, even a uni, because I was always that person that liked to be relaxed and chill before the deadline. So I would do it and then like leave a couple of days where I just chill or read it over or don't think about it. So I could never relate to that. But then I feel like those days then that, you know, I would technically be, fin be done early. As well as just in general coming early to everything are my like creative outlet because it's then when I'm just doing that mindless thinking, not really focusing on anything, emptying my brain in a way, kind of like Goku, you know, in the Dragon Ball. And by doing so, that's when I have the most of like the surge of creativity. 
So once I'm relaxed, but that second part of people admitting that they do have that surge once they're relaxed or just after they have watched the Netflix show and binged on it for like three days straight, which they should have used that time towards that project. That's the one they might struggle to admit to. The moral of this story is that the binging is the way forward, yes. But until they accept that question, their vulnerabilities and why are they not accepting them? What does that tell about them? And in doing so, make the world for yourself and others truly a better place. One motive at a time. Until the next one. Bye, fuckers.